0: water down there is the worship leader's water. This is the holy water. So I'll lay it right there just in case I need it. So glad to be here with you folks and to share in your work. Uh, It's a tough work to start a church and plant a church and especially in an area like this. Uh, God knows and you all know as well that we all need see more and more churches planted that would preach the gospel and I pray that God would uh, give you much fruit and help you to grow and to just uh, give you encouragement to see the Lord work in your midst and it takes time and God will do that work. But I'm preaching in Ephesians chapter 2 as Stephen said, I want to read the text first beginning in verse number 1 down through verse number 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The book of Ephesians tells us that God is building His church. And it gives us a picture of what God is bringing together. He is putting together a family of God. People from all nations, from all walks of life, from all races, although there is no such thing as different races. There's only one race, the human race. From all ethnic backgrounds, he's bringing them together into one body. And that's the theme, basically, of this book of Ephesians. And it speaks of the church as the family of God in Ephesians chapter 3. You'll see that when you get there. But here in this particular passage, he begins to explain, here's where you were. And you're going to go somewhere else. You're on a path to something else. And here's what you did to get to that place. This is a good passage of Scripture to witness out of. It's also a good passage of Scripture to um, learn how to be faithful in witnessing and to learn what has happened to us. I believe for every new convert who has received Jesus, the most important thing for them is to learn what has happened to them and what God has said about it so that he can grow based on that. This is a very important passage of Scripture because it speaks of us being in Christ and how we get in Christ. A verse from the Psalms gives me a picture of what Ephesians is all about. In Psalm 40, verse 2, it says, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. This is what God did for me. August the 18th, 1974. When I was translated out of the kingdom of darkness... Into His marvelous light, and God save my soul, and put me on a path to a place that I am longing to see. In this passage, scripture, he opens up in verse one, and he begins verses one to three to talk about the past. Here's where you were outside of Christ. You are not in Christ. The theme of the book of Ephesians. You are outside. That speaks of the predicament of man. Where He is. It's where you and I were before we knew the Lord. He says in verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The first part of the predicament is that we were dead. This does not mean dead physically. It means to be dead spiritually. Later on in verse 12, he points out that we were without hope and without God in the world. All of this began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, disobeyed God, and that very moment they died spiritually. They did not drop dead physically. They began to die physically. And you and I are in the process of decay. We are all dying in a physical sense. But that very moment... Adam and Eve became separated from God, and so they died. They were dead spiritually, and they began that slow spiral of death physically. You see, what is needed is life. If you're a Christian, the day that you had life, or began your life, was when you were saved. Your spiritual life. You began life when you received Jesus into your life. Before that, you were a walking dead person. A walking dead person. Can you remember the day that you came to know the Lord? The day you received life? John tells us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. As I grew up personally, I wasn't raised in church. I was only in church one time my whole life until I was 20. But it was a a good moral home. I had a good education. My parents took care of me. We had a good upbringing in that sense. We had strict moral standards. We were stricter than a lot of the church people I knew. But even though I was a good old boy, I did not have life. You see, a dead person needs life. And as we witness in our community here, people are walking around as dead men and dead women. And what they need is life. And they need the gospel so that they might have life. And I can illustrate this for you in a very important way. Suppose we brought a coffin into the auditorium with a dead person in it. And we had them up here at the front. And we decided to do everything we could to give that dead body some life. We could bring in a philosopher and let him quote all kinds of philosophy as he circles the coffin. It won't do any good because that body will still be dead. We could bring in a poet or somebody who's into literature. I'm not such a person, but somebody who's into poetry. Could bring in and read some Robert Frost poetry and circle the coffin and try to smooth talk the body, the dead body, into life. Won't work. We can have the current people running for office in the political realm, all these politicians, let them come and give their speeches to the corpse. That might raise it from the dead and cause it to run. I don't know. In reality, though, nothing they say will help the dead body. What the dead body needs is life. Someone may say, hey, I know what we need. We need some religion. Get some religion. That'll help. Well, let's bring in a Catholic priest and let him circle the coffin with the holy water and just sprinkle it on there and see how that'll work. Maybe even on the body and see what that'll do. We can bring in a Protestant minister and have him read portions of the New Testament. Well, that's fine to do, but the body's dead. We can bring in a Jewish rabbi to read parts of the Torah and, and, and say his sayings, and it really won't help. We can bring in the secular humanists to read parts of the humanist manifesto. Oh, and by the way... 1961, the year before the Supreme Court took prayer out of the public schools, they made a ruling that is little known and people don't really think about it at all. It's the Watkins case, and it said, and it defined what religion was in the First Amendment, and it included secular humanism as a religion. Secularism is a religion by the Supreme Court's own definition, but people don't really know that. Well, you can have that secular humanist read the humanist manifesto and speak on all kinds of humanistic terms, but the problem is that the body in the grave is dead. And it won't be helped. If we want to really get religious, here's what we could do. Fill up the baptistry with water. Take the corpse out of the coffin. Baptize it. See what that will do. No, it won't help. Why? Because the body is dead. It needs life. Now, I'm just using that as an illustration of the spiritual realm. We can do all kinds of religious things. We can do all kinds of activities. We can be involved in all kinds of philosophies and ideas. But what is needed for the dead men and women walking the streets of Brooklyn is life. The life of God. Eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text goes on to say that we are dead in transgressions and sins. The reason people are dead is that they have missed the mark. They haven't met up to the standard of God. And they've all transgressed. That is, they've gone beyond what what, uh, God has allowed And so he says don't do this and we do it. He says do this and we don't do that. We continually fall down before God. And in our unsaved state, we are all rebels against God's authority. So the first predicament of man, of all mankind, before we come to Christ, is that we are dead. The second thing is we are deceived. Look carefully at verse 2. It says, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. That means the other unsaved people. We were by nature deserving of wrath the Bible is talking about us being deceived and we have three enemies by which we have been deceived to be deceived means to be deluded to be tricked into believing a lie it means to be ensnared by that which is wrong and contrary to the truth and here the Bible says we're deceived first of all by the world when you followed the ways of the world Paul says the ways of the world is that world system of evil with its wickedness and all of its hatred. The world hates Christianity and it hates Christians. But what the world offers to us is only temporary. What it offers to dead people is only temporary. A famous passage in 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world. This is 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. In John 6, the will of God is to believe on Jesus Christ, whom He sent. hear the Bible tells us That the world and its desires, the things that would pull us toward it, pass away. In the original language, the original language of this text in 1 John actually speaks of standing before a parade. It's a word used to describe this. How many of you have ever been to the Macy's Parade here in New York City? Anybody been there? A few of you? You go and stand in any kind of parade. I've been in a parade. I was in in the parade. I was in the bus. Nobody could see me, but I was in the parade. But the parade goes by. You're standing there watching it. All the clowns and all the bands playing and all the balloons, all the things floating by. But the fact is, it is temporary. It is over. And then you go home. The Bible says that the world for Christians is like that. It's like a parade. It, it tries to allure and it tries to cause you to go follow its ways. But it's only a temporary thing. It will not last. It will not give satisfaction. But we are deceived by the world. I believe one of the greatest problems of Christianity the last 2,000 years is that we have a tendency to cave into the culture And let the culture tell us how to think and what to believe. Many Christians struggle with this. But not only in that unsafe state we're deceived by the world, we're deceived by the devil. Look back at verse 2 again. Back in Ephesians chapter 2 that is. I'm in the wrong spot here. It says this, And of the ruler... We're deceived, we follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Here the Bible speaks of the spirit that is working in those who are disobeying God. He's talking about unsaved people. He's talking about their predicament in the past, before they became a Christian. This describes what what we were as unsaved people and what people who are unsaved are today. It speaks of a ruler, a real personage. It calls it a spirit, and this is talking about Satan. He is a real personality. How do we know? Jesus said so, and that settles it for me. He has called in Scripture many things, including liar, deceiver, Apollyon the destroyer, the adversary of God, the serpent, and he has many other names. He has been active in deceiving men and women concerning God. He started in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe, we'll say more about this in just a moment, but I don't believe he can deceive a person unless they give him space to do such a thing. But people are easily gullible and people are easily deceived about their sin, and Satan works to make it so. For example, years ago, I I had a, a when I was a pastor in Florida, I had a problem lady in the church. She would be one of the top three gossips that I've ever met. You ever met people like that? Don't look at your wife or, or or anything. I went to talk to her about her gossip and her tongue. And she said this. Now keep in mind, she's one of the top three gossips I've ever met. And she said, I don't don't gossip. I don't say anything about anybody unless it's true. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Do you mean you take the truth and hurt somebody with it? If you just know that somebody did something, you go ahead and tell about it? Is that what you do? Is that what God wants in, in his word? Is that what the scripture says? What about that verse that says that love covers a multitude of sins? What about that? I couldn't get her to acknowledge that she was a gospel. She's one of the biggest ones I've ever met. She was blinded. Satan had blinded her eyes to the truth. And we have some other ones that we sort of don't consider important. Anybody here ever heard of the word gluttony? I mean, aren't Christians really good about feasting? Bible talks a lot about fasting, and that's good to fast. I know some of you are fasting. And I fast occasionally as the Lord gives me direction. But we spend a whole lot more time feasting. I'm not saying it's wrong to have fellowship and have donuts, especially if it's Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, or Popeye's fried chicken. I'm all for eating. I'm all for great fellowship. And I think some of that's real spiritual, especially the Popeye's thing. But the fact is... Gluttony is called in the Bible a sin. We don't take it seriously, do we? That is used in a verse right with drunkenness. Satan sometimes puts a cultural blindness across our... our when we accept some sins and reject others, or some are little sins are not so bad, and, and others... You know, the Catholics have their system of different kinds or levels of sin. And you know, sometimes people in Bible-believing Baptist circles do the same thing. They just don't call it that. And so it's important for us to recognize that Satan works to deceive us. He is the one who is driving people away from God. We're it not for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit The devil would plunge the entire world into hell today. But God has His promise. He has given His Son. If we have trusted in Him, we are safe. The same can still try to deceive. And certainly the unsaved people who are the walking dead, who are also deceived, have been deceived by the world and the master of that world, which is Satan. But the verse goes on to say, and you can be deceived by yourself. You can deceive yourself. In verse 3 it says, All of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Not only is the world out there deceiving us, not only is Satan out there deceiving us, the Bible says we have a sinful nature that from the inside, the desires and thoughts can deceive us and turn us away from God. And in our unsaved state, that's where we were. You know, we cannot blame it all on the devil, because you can deceive yourself. Some of you ever remember the African American comedian from many years ago named Flip Wilson. Anybody remember him? Anybody ever? He's a he a He had a little saying. And sort of his comic moment when he'd say, The devil made me do it. And he'd giggle and laugh and, and it was all funny and the crowd would laugh. But well, the problem is Philip Wilson's is wrong. You can't blame it all. And the devil can do a lot of things with people, but he doesn't do everything. You can deceive yourself. People, I've I've actually talked to people who were Having affairs, committing adultery. And I don't like to use the word affairs, because that's not a Bible word. Call what it is, adultery. Say what it is. Be honest with God's word and be honest with what they're doing. But I've had people who are actually in the midst of committing adultery. They're they're running away from a spouse and they're involved with somebody else, and they will sit there and say, God said that this was okay. I feel so much happier here. I feel I feel at rest and peace. And I'm going to church with another person in another church. And I'm doing all... You know, and I'm sitting there. People are deceiving themselves. I'm not saying the world and the devil don't play a part. But you can sin all by yourself. Sometimes people are that way about race. There's so much racism in the world. This hatred for people that are different. And they, they think that somehow... They're justified. How in the world can they get that from the Bible? They've deceived themselves. I've talked to many like that. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter three and verse 18, "Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise." So that's the predicament of man. He is dead and he's deceived. If he's lost, he's dead and he's deceived. Deceived by the world, the devil, and himself. But the second thing we see deals with the future primarily. and That is the purpose of God. For it says in verse number 4, But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Here the Bible says, we were dead, but Christ has made us alive. What we needed was life. And through Christ, We can have that life. And here God is demonstrating His future promise. He's demonstrating His love. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Some translations bring that but and God together. But God. I sort of like that idea. God saw our predicament. He saw the wickedness that was there. He saw our plight. He saw our problem. But God, who is rich in mercy and love, reached down to speak to us and bring us to himself. The Bible says that he made us alive even while we were dead in our transgression, dead in our sin, dead in our rebellion, and God still loved us. You know, people tend to believe that God does not love them. If you were to go up and down the streets of Brooklyn and just talk to an average person, does God love you? They really don't think God loves them. Or they may have a shallow view and say, oh, God loves everybody. And God loves me no matter how bad I am. Stuff like that. But if you really get down not to the brass tacks of things, exactly where are they? They don't really believe that God loves them. So much bad has happened, yet the Bible speaks of mercy, God withholding judgment. All the bad things that have happened to all the people of the world. God's mercy, it could be a lot worse, you see. People tend to believe God won't love them, but the Bible declares here that the picture is always grim until God steps on the scene. And He gives a demonstration of, of His grace in Christ. That's what it says in verse 5. That He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You see love is not love until it is demonstrated. It is the purpose of God. To display His love for sinners. What you to think of a husband. Who would never express his love to his wife. Or a wife who would never express love to her husband. That would be unthinkable. If it is truly there, it will be expressed in some way. God has expressed it. He's looked at the predicament of man and He did not turn His back. He sent Christ to be a demonstration to us of His love. Most of us know all about the cross. We've sung about it today. We see crosses on churches. We see crosses mounted in people's Dashboard in their cars. The cross is a big thing in Christian circles. But you know what the cross of Christ really shows? It shows two main things. Number one, it shows what God thinks of sin. If you think God is light on sin, you look at the cross. There at the cross, God judged every sin That has ever been committed. That's what God thinks of sin. But it also demonstrates how great God's love is for sinners. Because He judged sin in the person of His own Son. Jesus, God in human flesh, who went to the cross and there He bore our sin, the Bible says. He took our sins upon himself, and he was judged in our place. Now I have a twin brother named Mike. He's the dean at Baptist Bible Seminary. When he and I were growing up, we were close, but we had problems sometimes. We had problems so that our mother, whenever my brother did something wrong, we both got the whipping. If I did something wrong... We both got it. She figured we were all in on it together, I guess. I don't know. We were a heap of trouble. He never took a whipping from me and me just stand back. We all got it together. But what if one day I did something wrong and my brother had gone to my mother and said, You know, Jimmy didn't do that. I mean, he did that, but I'm going to take it for him. You, you let me have it for my brother. It would have been nice if he would have done that. But he never did. But it will illustrate the point of what God has done. You see, God has to judge sin. If God did not judge sin, He would cease to be God, and God cannot cease to be God. It is His holiness is why men and women are lost. It is His holiness is why they are away from God and outside the family of God. But He loves us so much that He figured out a way to satisfy the demands of His holiness and His justice. And Jesus came and paid the full penalty. What a glorious thing. But it leads to what we are talking about here, about the future. Because look what it says. It is by grace you have been saved. Then in verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ And seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's our position in Christ. In order that in the... Notice this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In order that in the coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God is saying that He in the future, in the coming ages, is going to demonstrate to the entire universe His mercy and His kindness and His grace. He is going to show off the trophies of mercy and grace to the whole universe. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're part of the trophy case. I know I'm going. I'm part of his trophy case. And he's going to show me off. And you as well. You know, uh, we came up here to visit. uh, And Stephen asked me to speak. And yes, it's true. It just worked out just perfectly to see our new grandson. We would have come anyway. But that's still neat that it worked out that way. I remember when your pastor, Stephen, was born. I looked in that maternity through that maternity window at the hospital. There were eight babies in bassinets there. Stephen was one of them. And the I said, "Man, one beautiful baby and seven ugly ones." <laughs> you just sort of feel like that, you know, when you're with my first child. You know, I just uh, look at that. And we took him home and. In just a couple of days, my mother and father show up to visit. doorbell rings and I open the door. There stands my mother. And does she say, good to see you, son. How you doing? How you like being a a new father? How's things going? No, she doesn't say that at all. She simply says, where's my grandbaby? That's what she said. There's something about that. we got pictures of our grandkids. We're going to show them off to everybody. When I go back to Atlanta... To, to my church there, I'll, I'll show the pictures to everybody because they've seen them on Facebook now anyway. So, but I'll show them some more. I got some on my phone. I mean, there's we're gonna we enjoy that. You know, God, just think about that for a moment, and think about how God is going to be a gazillion times greater in His demonstration of mercy and grace in showing all the angelical realm is going to be standing and watching what God does with the people of God and demonstrating how glorious His mercy and His grace really is. But then He comes to the last part, which is the promise of God. The famous verses that Brother Sean mentioned. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift. Of God it's not by works so that no one can boast the first thing we see about this promise of God and keep in mind the predicament of man for us who are saved that was in the past the the purpose of God that we saw in the second part looks forward to the future when we're showed off by the Lord and that speaks of the future this is speaking of the present Here's what a person does to get from being out of Christ to being in Christ. It's very simple, but yet it's very powerful. He said it is by by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. The Bible speaks of salvation as a free gift. It is through faith alone. You can't earn it. You can never be good enough to ever receive it. You can't work for it. You can't do enough works. You can't buy it. You don't have enough money. You have to get it free or you won't have it. If you're sitting here and you're a true Christian, and I hope all of you are, you got it free. If you're trying to work your way to heaven, you're probably not saved. If you're in that kind of mindset, you're trying to work your way there, then you're probably not saved. You see, man is incurably religious, believing that he can somehow be good enough to earn the favor of God. But notice verse 9 specifically. None of us, Scripture clearly says that it it is not by works so that no one... Can boast. I know for sure I'm going to heaven one day, either in death or at the time when the Lord comes again. And I'll be standing in heaven on those golden streets, and I will not be able to say, I'm here because I read my Bible through. I'm here because I'm a good person. I'm here because I have a son who's a pastor. I'm here because uh, I like good Christian music. Uh, I'm here because I've just been a good neighbor. I've been a, a good husband th- to my wife. And, and, uh, I, and I'm just really a good guy. No. No. I will only be able to say I'm here by the mercy and grace of God. By, as a free gift that I received one day on planet earth. No one will ever be able to say anything other than that. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans. He said, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul said that to the church at Rome. We cannot boast. Boasting is gone. If it is a free gift, there's no boasting in it. Now, if I were to bring one of you up here and say, I want to give you my Bible, this is a nice. I'm not going to do that. We're just pretending to talk here, okay? <laughs> Nowadays, I've gone to say, open your Bibles to such and such, or your iPhones or your iPads or whatever, you know. Take notes and just stick them back in where your SIM card is and your phone or whatever. You know, it's so different now than when I started preaching. It's so different. But the fact is, if I said, okay, you can, I'm going to give this Bible away. And I had one of you come up here, and I said to you, now, if you want this Bible, it's yours. But you've got to work real hard the next two weeks. And then if you've done what I've asked you to do the next two weeks, you've behaved yourself, then you can come back, and we'll check it out, and then I'll give you the Bible. Would it be a gift then? The answer is no, because you had to work for it. But suppose I said, okay, you can have it right now, but you got to go and work for a couple of weeks and be really good, behave yourself, and then come back, and we'll check up on you, and if you haven't been good, then I'm going to have to take that Bible back. Would that be a gift? No, it wouldn't be a gift. But if I said to you, now here's the Bible. Based on my promise, you can have it today. It is yours if you want it. What would you have to do to get the free gift of my Bible? You have to reach out and do what? Take Which means faith in me. And, of course, in relationship to salvation, that person must come to realize they need the gift of salvation in order to get to that place where they receive it. That's what we often call repentance and things like that. You have to repent, have a change of mind and heart to receive it. But you must receive it as a gift or you will not make it to heaven. You are not in Christ. And you desperately need to be in Christ. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher. He said, It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your hope in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit that takes you to heaven. In other words, I am going to heaven because of Jesus, not because of Jimmy. I've trusted Him. And therefore I am stand saved before God. I've been translated from my predicament of being dead and deceived. I have a future hope, because I have done what Ephesians chapter 2, verses eight and nine, have said. And God closes out with this in verse number 10. "For we are God's handiwork. I like that word. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Handiwork. Some people translate it workmanship or craftsmanship. This is the work of God's hand. This is his future goal for us. Once we are saved, once we belong to God, then he has mapped out for us service for him. Yes, we do good works, we aren't free from doing good works. We work because we want to. We want God's plan for our life. And our life looks like a work of art that runs its course and plays out the way God intended it to be. It's like He's doing a painting. And that painting is you and you and you. It's like He's writing a poem. And that poem is about you and you and you. It is like He is doing a sculpture. And that sculpture is you. It is His work. And if we are saved and surrendered to His plan for our life, that will work out. I have to wonder. I'm not God, so I have to wonder this. When He looks down at planet Earth with 7 billion people, what does He see? He sees nations at war. He sees terrorists here. He sees countries squabbling over here. He sees families in trouble. He sees economic chaos. He sees all the things that many people in the world see those things. But I I keep wondering, what does God see? He doesn't divide people up by colors or ethnicities or nationalities or any other thing. He looks down and he sees two kinds of people. Saved. And lost. You are either one of the two. But well, we could describe them with two different pictures. I got this from Warren Worsby, a great Bible teacher. The first picture is that of a, a dead person who is lost. Remember, we talked about that at the beginning of the message. This dead person is lost, and today they are wearing their grave clothes. They're not physically dead, but they are dead spiritually. And they're walking around spiritually with grave clothes on. Those who are lost are dead in their transgressions and sins. And right now they're wearing their grave clothes. But those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ who have invited Him into the life and put their faith and trust in Him and Him alone for their salvation, they are wearing their grace clothes. They have entered into that grace that God has promised and that God has given. Another one of my favorite verses of the New Testament is 1 John five twelve. It says this, He that has his son... Has life. He that has not the Son has not life. If you have the Son, what is it you have? Life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. You have to have the Son. I don't need some cult leader or some other person. If you have Jesus, you have what you need. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life and you receive the Son through faith, as Ephesians chapter 2 teaches. So what about you? Do you have the Son? Do you have life? What are you wearing today? Are you wearing your grave clothes? Or your grace clothes? Let's bow together for prayer. With every eye closed, every head bowed. I hope and trust that everyone here knows the Lord. I don't know all of you personally. I know many of you, but I don't know the condition of your heart. Maybe deep in your heart. You're struggling with salvation, with assurance for yourself. Maybe you could take this passage and just go through it and think through it. Get some things settled with the Lord. Being part of Mosaic Baptist Church doesn't save any soul. Being part of the work doesn't bring you eternal life. Being religious won't help you as we've already seen. Because if you're lost, you're dead. And deceived, even though you're sitting in the house of God. But if you are saved... You do know the Lord. You can take this passage of Scripture and start from verse 1 down to verse 10 and use it to witness to somebody, to share Jesus with someone who does not know Him. You're going to bump around with people, you're going to see people that are at work, at various places, institutions, and schools. Who are dead and deceived. And I hope this week you'll think about that when you come across them. You'll know, you'll think in your heart, this person's not a believer. They are dead and deceived. You're not going to be judging them. But it's your job to help them find Jesus. That they might have life and become in Christ part of the grander mosaic family that God. Has on this planet God help you to do it Heavenly Father thank you Lord for the truth of your word thank you Heavenly Father for this passage and how clear it is I pray that you would take the truth cause it to be very deep in our hearts that we might bear fruit from it in our own life I thank you Lord for saving my soul And giving me the privilege to preach to these dear people. I pray your blessing upon the pastor and the staff. And these folks. Accomplish your perfect will through them. And glorify yourself. In the name of Jesus I pray and for his sake. Amen.